0: Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg, and we have an incredible episode for you today. We're going to be talking to Jody Foster, co-author of The Schmuck in My Office, Before we do, though, I just have to share with you that The Schmuck in My Office is one of the books that we're going to be having as part of our book club, and the sign-up deadline is approaching. The sign-up deadline, I think, is May 1st. Our first meeting is going to be the third Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to be talking about 10 different books, and I'm super excited that Jodi's actually going to be coming into our June book club and having a conversation with us about her book, The Schmuck in My Office. And so let me share with you a little bit about Jody. If she was in the theater world, she'd be called a double threat. She's both an MD and an MBA. She's the clinical professor of psychology and the assistant dean for professionalism at the University of Pennsylvania's med school. I've already mentioned we had her on the podcast, gosh, over 200 episodes ago. And I will share with you that I turned to her book, again and again and again, the schmuck in my office. And I'm holding it up right now so that Jody can see I actually do have her book. And I'm just going to randomly turn to a page and she's going to see that I've underlined, I've dog-eared, I've done all of that. And not only that, I have used this book so much that the dust jacket on it is destroyed. Like literally, you know how you'll turn to a book so much and, you know, then you'll throw it in a backpack and, the dust jacket goes kind of bad and a little bit more bad. And eventually you're like, okay, I just have to throw it out because it looks so bad. So that's how much I have I have used this book. And I'll share with you, I've used it in my own life. And I've also used it when in working with clients where I might sometimes suggest it to a client where I'll say, oh, you know, you're having a really hard time with a board member. And there's an archetype of schmuck in this book. And let me send you a copy of the book and then we can talk about it. So this is also for folks that know me well. They know that I love to give away books. And so this is one of the books that I often make Amazon and Jeff Bezos rich by because I will often ship this book out to people. So I am very excited that Jody is having this conversation with us today. Jody, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you for sending the book out. I didn't know that. That's great.
0: It's one of my things, like I read my guilty pleasures. I read three quarters of a book a week because I don't finish the vast majority of books that I read. But if I actually finish a book, it typically ends up in the list of, oh my gosh, this book was so good, I actually finished it. I know I'm going to be giving it away to people. And so yours is a book that I've read multiple times all the way through, and I love to give it away. And, and I will also say that in my own life, sometimes maybe I'll be working with a client and they have a disruptive staff member or a disruptive board member, and I literally will like open up your book and go, okay, I think it's one of these three archetypes of schmucks. And so let me read about this, this type of schmuck, and then let me read about the best way to manage and deal with and mitigate the fallout and disruption. So again, I've found your book super helpful. Thank you.
1: Wow, thank you. That's exactly how I would have wanted the book to be used. So that brings me tremendous pleasure.
0: So I got to ask, because I hear that in preparing for this conversation...
1: No, I'm, I'm not the actress.
0: Oh, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that 100%. But I understand that you have a really interesting vignette about a schmuck in the toilet in my office.
1: Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. You know, the book was done and it was about to be released. And, and I got a call from somebody related to the production of the book, and so, you know, Jody, the book is great. You know, I really, I learned a lot. Only problem is I, I couldn't find my schmuck. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? Like, who is your schmuck? And this person then proceeded to uh, describe a situation where his uh, business was in, in a pretty small setting in an older building in New York City. And um, there were just uh, a couple of small companies per floor. And, and on each floor was just a single bathroom with a single stall. One of the funny things about doing work with sort of interpersonal conflict and disruptive people, whatever, is you, you have no idea how much of the work centers around the, the the shared toilet and the shared refrigerator. It's absolutely astounding. But in this particular setting, there was an individual, and it always like blows my mind how these people can't seem to be easily caught when you're in these small settings. But there was this you know, small business setting, and a, a particular individual would routinely go to the bathroom in this in this business and this, again, the single bathroom stall and clog the toilet for whatever reason. And as, as though that were not enough, this person would then literally stuff the toilet full of toilet paper and then take reams and reams of toilet paper and essentially mummify the toilet bowl, like rendering it, just, just wrap it up. Basically rendering it utterly unusable for the rest of the day. And so, you know, obviously there's a a certain number of people in this business who obviously have to go to the bathroom during the day and they just couldn't do that. And so the amount of disruption in this setting was outrageous because everyone, first of all, everyone was running around looking for a place to go to the bathroom. And second of all, the, the chatter and the talk about, you know, who is this person doing it? Why are they doing it? Why are they wrapping the toilet? What's going on? Blah, 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 blah. I mean, the water cooler chatter alone, I, it, the productivity just plummeted in this place just because of this particular situation. And so, you know, my first response to the person who called was, "Well, uh, no, actually, of course, I didn't include this particular example in my book because I couldn't have even fathomed of such a thing." But you know, as we kept talking, then the type associated was, of course, in the book, but. I said, you know, why? Why doesn't anybody confront the situation and you know have the person stop? Oh no, 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 no. We could never. No, no, we could never do that. That would be too humiliating. It would be too embarrassing. I was like, well, you know, this is where you're going to get because all you're doing is talking about it. No, no, no. I, okay, well, thank you, Jody, but I can't do that. So months pass, and months later, I get an excited call from the guy. Saying, Jody, we did it. We did it. Human resources did exactly what you said. They put a sign on the door. It said cease and desist, and you know if you keep doing this, we're we're gonna we're gonna suss you out, we're gonna find you, and and we're you know we're going to you know make it public, and, and you're gonna stop. What do you think happened, Dolph? Well, that day, the situation that had plagued the company for months stopped, and it's a great example of. If you don't call something out, if you don't provide feedback that this is causing a problem, I mean, obviously, one would imagine that mummifying a toilet bowl or eating other people's food in a shared refrigerator is going to cause trouble. But some people are just sort of oblivious or they kind of convince themselves that it's really not causing that much trouble. People don't really know. And the thing stopped immediately. So it's just a great lesson. And I'm not saying that obviously the problem didn't move. I mean, the problem may have moved from McDonald's across the street for all we know, but it stopped happening at that place because limits were set at that place. And that's, you know, these are just sort of key lessons that um, make this a great example.
0: So two things. I've done a good little bit of work in New York, and I can picture the type of office you're talking about with a toilet room at the end of the hall, and there's four or five organizations or businesses on the hall. I can picture it. And you're right. There's always drama around that shared single toilet room, always. But the other thing, I just, I want to I try to guess, because you said you were able to identify the archetype of schmuck. And so I, as, as you were telling the story, I was thinking it's either distracted or eccentric. But I'm, but by your face, I think I've got it wrong. So, what was the type? It
1: actually, this this was a, a actually a beam counter type. So you'll you'll generally find people who have obsessive qualities that you know that that sort of obsessionality around perfectionism, cleanliness, things like that. The the sort of the the wrapping up, the sort of gift wrapping of of you know one's waste products <laughs> might be an example of a type of obsessionality and perfectionism.
0: It's interesting. I had not even thought it might be bean counter until you explained it that way. And I'm like, oh yeah, I get it. They're like, I have to perfectly cover this up.
1: Right. Now a distracted person probably wouldn't be able to like, you know, finish the job of actually modifying <laughs> the toilet. You know, and an eccentric person, we don't, we don't generally find so many of them in the workplace, you know, they, they tend to have very isolated jobs um, because of these eccentricities.
0: And and I, I'm glad you brought up bean counter because I think a lot of us who've been executive directors or leaders in organizations have run across bean counters either in our on our board or in our senior leadership team. So Absolutely. could you talk about the bean counter in some ways that like they can really be disruptive when you're trying to get a decision made?
1: Oh my goodness, yes. I mean, uh, you know, I will tell you, um, and I may have said this the last time we spoke, The bean counter chapter was really the hardest one for me to write because I personally have been plagued by so many bean counters in my professional career. So all of these personality types have sort of a positive and a negative. And I mean, who doesn't want to be detail oriented? You know, who doesn't want to do things the right way? And so we all want to be like a lot of doctors that I work with who have bean counter traits. They're great doctors because they're, you know, they're careful and they're doing things right. And they're checking it twice and all that kind of thing. And that's, that's all wonderful. It's just that when, you know, if if you think about the, the driving force for what makes somebody perfectionistic or, or micromanaging or whatever, it tends to come down to a fear of a loss of control. And, you know, it would be great if we could control the vicissitudes of life, but we can't. And the bean counters have a very hard time accepting this truth. They, they're the ones who can't just sort of throw their hands up and say, oh, you know, what will be will be. And so perhaps understanding that they can't control the world, they can't control the weather, they can't control illness, they can't control things like that. They spend their time controlling their local environments and their local environments sometimes include you. And the bean counter type would rather postpone and obsess and process a decision than make a wrong decision. And this can put entire organizations, you know, at a standstill. They also become so focused on, you know, their items of interest that if you if you think about, you know, the entirety of New York City, the bean counter will only focus on Grand Street. you know, They cannot see the forest for the trees, and they just tend to get in the weeds and unable to move things forward. And it's a fascinating character because the bean counter is probably the single most over-promoted character. So you take a, let's say, a visionary CEO who wants to be the idea person and says, oh, you know, I want to I want to think big, so I need a detailed person to be my operating officer. And then they put a bean counter in the COO role. Well, the bean counter can't be a COO because, like I said, they're so singularly focused, and they can't move things forward. And when people bring innovative ideas their way, they just sort of beat them down with sort of, you know, the negatives of why the thing won't work. So, It's a very kind of stifling, crushing, sort of straitjacketing kind of character to work for. And feeling micromanaged and like you can't move freely or like you can't make mistakes is a very hard place to be.
0: About a year or two ago, we were working with an organization around a strategic plan, and they had a bean counter on their board who like literally we would present some data and they go oh well this is very interesting now could we could we slice and dice this data in different ways and about the third or fourth round of that we had to say okay we're going to slice and dice it this way but we and by the way I got this from your book but we need we need to come to an alignment that once we present this data everybody's going to be ready to make a decision because we can parse this data literally until the end of the earth and you're not going to make a decision
1: yes exactly Perfect example.
0: And I'll share with you, like literally, like like I got that from your book. Cause I was like, this is one of those times I turned to your book and I was like, okay, how do I manage this person? Because we are not going to move this project forward unless we can move this person off of where they currently are.
1: Yeah. And on an individual level, you know, a lot of the problem that happens here is that the bean counter thinks that really only they can do it right. And so if you're working for such a person, you basically have to convince that person that you're trustworthy too. So the worst thing you can do is go up to them and say, hey, why are you so obsessive? You know, chill out. You know, that's not going to work. They're going to they're utterly lose respect for you. And if you make a mistake, you know, own the mistake, say, yes, you know, this was a mistake I shouldn't have made. I see where I went wrong. I'm not going to go wrong again. And I appreciate your detail-oriented nature and I'm detail-oriented too. You know, you can, you can rely on me. Because, I mean, everybody makes mistakes, even the encounter, and being able to own them and not minimize them is how you're going to build trust with such an
0: individual. I love it. Now, before we hit record, we were also talking about ways in which, because, you know, your book came out in 2017 and none of us envisioned a a global pandemic when your book came out. That's not true. Maybe some people did. I did not envision a global pandemic when when your book came out. But we also, before we hit record, talked about ways that the COVID pandemic has really changed the way both schmucks present in the workplace, but also the ways that that disruptive behavior interrupts our ability to do our work.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a lot of, for example, the narcissus character kind of blowing past the lines for, you know, the temperature checks in the hospital. We saw some people bringing entire families, you know, past the barriers. So the people who sort of taken above the law and I know better perspective were were actually causing quite a bit of trouble in trying to kind of rein control over what was going on. As the pandemic proceeded, as you know, we saw a lot of real pathology and are seeing in terms of depression and anxiety and, and PTSD and things like that. But in terms of personality, what's happened is that the ongoing you know, whatever you want to call it, disillusionment, languishing—you know, this ongoing drag of kind of not knowing when this is ending and what the future is going to look like. I mean, we as people hate uncertainty, we hate change. You know, we want—we only—we all want to know how the book's going to end, and we haven't been able to have that. And then add in, you know, tragedy. Add in additional burdens like. Child care and child you know education at home and things like that, and moving ourselves into a home workspace or changing what we're doing in the workspace, all these things have added up. and as time has just ground on and on and on, you know our reserve for bringing our best selves to work has really sort of kind of been ground down and so, What I'm seeing in my work is an unprecedented amount of conflict at work. And what's interesting to me is, you know, the people who got into trouble with their interpersonal relations before, yeah, sure, they got into trouble again. But we are seeing just a lot of people who just we never saw before, people who just never, ever brought their less aesthetic selves to work before. But now they just don't have the, the sort of secondary process to be able to kind of, you know, always take the high road. And it's that it's that exhaustion and that kind of drag that has led to people just not having the reserve and being crispier at work and just having a lower threshold for conflict with one another.
0: And how do we as colleagues and managers handle that?
1: Again, I think the best way to, you know, handle the elephant in the room is to say, hey, there's an elephant in the room. And to say, you know, I know we are all exhausted, you know, First of all, are there things we can do or resources we can offer that will help you kind of get yourself back into, you know, back on your square? And, you know, just the mere fact of telling someone that they're kind of unhinged at work for a lot of us, that'll just be all we need to kind of snap back into, you know, our regular behavior. But I, again, I think just, you know, misery loves company and being able to kind of discuss the stress, discuss the ongoing drain and drag of of all the changes and everything that's associated with it is, you know, helps people to remember that we're all trying to kind of muck through this together and and that we need to try a little bit harder, you know, resource those who can and remind those who can.
0: Yeah. So I know you talk about a number of different types of disruptive behaviors that people exhibit or, or types of schmucks and... Are there any types of disruptive behavior that typically don't respond well to, okay, let's talk about it, or let's post a notice?
1: Well, I think in all of them, they might not respond well to, let's talk about it. <laughs> I, I think that's really the crux of, of um, intervention. So the, the data in this arena is extremely powerful. In about 80% of cases, if you tell somebody that they're behaving in a way that's objectionable to others, they either will have not realized it because they behave that way in other parts of their lives and they didn't know it was a problem in this place or whatever, in 80% of cases, they'll say, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that I was causing this kind of disruption, I'll stop. Or they'll say, okay, yes, I realize I've been kind of acting in a certain way, I'll, you know, I can't stop. And they will stop. And the wonderful thing about this, uh, again, I'm sure I mentioned this at our last meeting, but the reason I called the book The Schmuck in my office is because... Easily, 85% of the calls I get start with, Jody. I should have called you 10 years ago. I have this schmuck in my office. I have this jerk in my department. And when you hear the data that says that in 80% of cases, that behavior would have just stopped if you had told them about it instead of sitting on it and sticking your head in the sand for 10 years, well, shame on you. You know, these people aren't schmucks. They're being who they are, you know. The great lion's share of people in our workplace are not in any way mentally ill. They're just bringing their personality traits to work with them, and these are personality traits that have been adaptive, that have worked for them, that have you know allowed them to navigate the world successfully their whole lives, and the way they act with their families and their friends, and and in other jobs, and maybe now in this particular workplace, it doesn't really work. It's not it's not a good fit with the culture. So when we don't say something, we are in fact perpetuating the problem. So, you know, the, the average manager will say, oh, I don't like what this person just did. Let me stick my head in the ha- in the sand and hope they don't do it again. But but we are creatures of habit and we do do it again and again and again and again. And 10 years later, this person, the, you know, the boss thinks they're a smart. If 80 percent of people will respond to that, the the great part about that is that if it's, you know, I'm a creature of habit, six months later, I do the same thing. It's much easier to say. Hey, remember that thing we talked about six months ago? You're doing it again, and they're like, "Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry." As opposed to again waiting those ten years, but that least twenty percent of people, Dolph, and and what do we do with them? So, ten or fifteen percent of people will say, "Yeah, you know, I know I do this thing, and I know it's a problem, but I have absolutely no idea how to stop doing it." And I love those are the that's for me bread and butter because those are the people who want to change, which means they can change. I just need to help them get to the tools to change. But then there's going to be 5 to 10% of people, which is consistent with, you know, personality problems and personality disorders in the population, who say, oh, you don't like the way I'm acting? Well, too bad, because I love the way I'm acting, and I'm going to keep doing it indefinitely because it's it works, and it's how I have to be. You know, in, in the medical profession, it might be, you know... I am the best doctor in the world and, and, you know, I am a champion of quality and I have to scream at, at, you know, uh, trainees and nursing staff to to get the good care for my patients. And when I might say, well, why is it that 99% of people who have the exact same outcomes you do don't have to do this? That data point doesn't resound with them. So for those people, you know, we have to find a way to set limits with their behavior. And so it doesn't really necessarily matter the character type. It really matters the malleability with which one receives feedback and an assessment of whether or not there is incentive to change or if there's not incentive. And if there's not incentive to change, then we as managers need to incent and find ways to do that. And often that might be, you can be this way. That's fine. If it works for you, great. It's just that it doesn't work here. So if you are going to perpetuate A, B, and C behavior, we can't keep doing this. And that's how you can change someone's behavior overnight.
0: Jody, I'll share with you that that's the mechanism used or recommended by one of my favorite books called Discipline Without Punishment. And it's all about like how to create discipline without punishing people and going, well, this is our expectation. And if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. But we don't work for you then. Exactly. I do want to go back for a quick second because you, you've talked about the importance of just having a conversation and you've referred to it as an intervention. And so what are the best ways to approach that conversation?
1: Well, each one is going to be a little bit different. And, you know, maybe I use the word intervention because by the time I'm called, <laughs> like a hundred conversations have happened and it is an intervention. But it really, in in an ideal world, it is the organic, natural conversation that occurs all day, every day between people. So, you know, Dolph, you inadvertently say something to me that I don't like. And instead of, you know, running to the water cooler and saying, you won't believe what Dolph just said, I say, you know, I trust you didn't mean it this way. But when you said, blah, it hit me this way. And and I'm not really comfortable with that. And you might say, well, oh, I meant to insult you because I feel really angry at you about blah, blah, blah. Or you might've said, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean it that way at all. But a dialogue ensues and then it dissipates. It dissipates immediately. And if we could all just do that, then so much of what becomes this maelstrom that ends up going to senior management would just not happen. So, you know, the ideal intervention is timely and concise and direct and built upon having a, a good grasp of, you know, what is my stuff and what is your stuff, what exactly you did that I found objectionable, and then me having an empathic posture as to why you might have, you know, had that. Maybe you said something nasty because, you know, your, your, uh, your kid was sick today or something like that, or something's going on at home, or maybe, you know, you, you just had a bad review or whatever it is. And then just, you know, early intervention is key, and concise and direct discourse is key, and Again, most conflicts would just fade into the ether if we could all just do that.
0: And it sounds like like you almost recommend if it's peer-to-peer that you just have that peer-to-peer conversation. You don't, you don't go to your supervisor or their supervisor first. You just kind of say, hey, can we talk?
1: If you have the wherewithal and the confidence to be able to do that, absolutely. Why triangulate? Why involve other people? You know, if you can handle the situation by yourself right then and there, why not do it?
0: So... I have to share with you, Jody, I love that you said why triangulate. Long ago and far away, I was a social worker, not a clinical social worker, but long ago and far away, I was a social worker. I often now do interim executive director engagements. And you know, when you step in as a new leader, suddenly everyone, and let me back up, when you step in as a new temporary leader, often brought in with a very specific agenda by the board, like we need you to do the following things. Often people who've been jockeying for position will suddenly come and grab your ear and go, oh, this, oh, that. And I always say like, I don't do triangulation station. The train does not stop here. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Because I do, I see that all the time when I step in as a new leader, where people who've been maybe working an agenda for a year or years even will suddenly be like, oh, here's a new person. Maybe, maybe in my first conversation with them, I can get them to make a sweeping change to policy. And I'm always just like, what? What in what world would I do this? So it sounds like you see some of that as well.
1: Oh, of course. Yes. Damning by faint praise, kind of running up to try to, you know, be first to market to say the thing about the other person. Absolutely. I mean, you know,
0: jockeying is exactly the right word. I love that. And so one of the things I also wanted to ask you about, and I know we've already kind of touched on the pandemic some, but gosh, you know, your book came out five years ago and I know personalities are personalities and a lot of the core behaviors and personality types don't necessarily change certainly not in a five-year time span they might in a 500 year but not in a five-year time span but is there anything in the book that maybe you would approach differently now than you did probably when you were writing it i'm assuming you're writing in like 2015 2016
1: you know i'm happy to say no i've continued to apply the principles of the book before the book was ever conceived of since it was written I will say that, again, probably as a result of the pandemic, there's probably a little bit more of of the uh, Mr. Hyde character than I would have wanted to see, more substance use. But again, in terms of the character types themselves and the interventions, they're they're all really identical because, you know, one of the things that I love about people is that people are people. And we've been this way. My, My sister is a museum curator, and she always, always loves to talk about how no matter where you are in history, you know, or when, you know, people are people. We The same dynamics, same conflicts. And so these are very stable kind of concepts and the handling of them is also really very stable. So no, I'm, I'm happy to say that it's at the moment timeless.
0: That's awesome. And, and can you say a little bit about the Mr. Hyde character and the ways in which it's been intensified during the pandemic? Those of us that are working with a Mr. Hyde where or, or Ms. Hyde could help manage that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's such, you know, there, there are only of the 10 types, only two of them, you know, really may have pathology, like real pathology. I mean, obviously, any of the types that I've described can exist to pathological intensity, but Mr. Hyde is someone who is struggling with the substance use issue. And I mentioned the pandemic because there, you know, there has been more, um, Uh, substance use during this time for a variety of reasons. The problem with Mr. Hyde is that you probably won't know that you are working with Mr. Hyde or Ms. Hyde until and unless the individual self-discloses or there is kind of a an, an ugly reveal and that's what makes this so hard. The other thing that makes it hard is that substances mimic essentially any psychiatric disorder and so Um, it's very hard to, you know, look at someone behaving a certain way and say, oh, that's that's substance use. The trick of the trade here is that, as I've mentioned now many times in in this podcast, people are people and we become who we are, you know, as we're developing in our teen years. And by the time we're, you know, 18, 19, which is when in psychiatry, you're allowed to make a personality disorder diagnosis, our personalities are kind of formed. You know, the ways we navigate the world are kind of formed. And so, if you are working with somebody um, for a period of time and then there's a sudden change in their personality, that is a red flag. And that is a red flag that says, okay, I need to, in addition to other things I'm thinking about, I need to think about is something medical going on with this person or is somebody using a substance that's changing their personality? So, if there's an erratic baseline, so Let's say you know somebody is you know it at their baseline, and then some one day comes in and is very activated, and then the next week is is very slowed. If there's this erratic baseline to the presentation, you want to think about whether that's whether that's happening. Now, the navigation with such a person is very very difficult because if someone's not ready to self disclose, um, it's very hard to. I actually have a uh, an example of this where I had a person working for me. And he came to work one day. It was perfectly functional, but he stank. He stank like a bar. And we were working with trainees in a, in a clinical setting. And I and I, I pulled him aside and I said, "You smell like alcohol." And he said, "Oh my goodness, I'm you know so sorry. It, it is true. Some friends came from college. We're in over the weekend, and we were drinking. You know, pre- pretty late. I had no idea that I, I'm totally humiliated. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry." I said, "Okay, well, you know." Obviously, it's not a great message to send. So maybe, you know, you go home and, and, uh, you know, we'll start again tomorrow. Lo and behold, a few weeks later or maybe a month or so later, the individual came to work again, was, you know, perfectly functional at work, but was absolutely ready faced and was, you know, pointing at something and his hand was just shaking like crazy. And I said, "Okay, this is the second time and I think something's going on. And I said, um, you know, I'm not ready to pull you into ACH Health. I'm sorry, I'm not ready to pull you into ACH Health and get you tested. But I, I see that there's an issue here. And I think we're going to need to address it. And and lo and behold, after that, he started to have a lot of absenteeism, and eventually came into my office one day and said, I I have an alcohol problem, and you know, you've called it out. I know that you are aware of it, and I'd like help. And that was a great outcome, person. We got this person to rehab and he's, uh, been, you know, having a, you know, great career. Everything's going fine, but that happened and it happened because it was called out and pointed out as an issue and allowed him to, it was sort of a catalyst to his own realization.
0: I really appreciate the fact that you kind of summarized it in that way, that really, because you were willing to have that initial conversation when he was ready to get help, you're the person he came to. He's like, okay, I got a problem. I need yep. some help. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, Jody, we are rapidly running out of time. And I, you know, I've always got to ask an off-the-map question. And this is a way for our listeners to get to know you a little bit as a person. And so, you know, I love Philly. Um, I, Philly is my adopted hometown. I was not born there, but I lived there. And it's the, the favorite place I've ever lived in my entire life. And one of the things I love about Philly is it's such a historic city. And there are so many great firsts that come out of Philly. And I understand that you are part of one of those firsts in Philly.
1: I am. I work at the first hospital in the nation, which is Pennsylvania Hospital, which is now part of the University of Pennsylvania Health System. But I have the distinct honor of being the first female chair of any medical department at the first hospital in the nation. So back in, I guess, the early 2000s, I thought that was going to be my legacy. I have since had my son, (laughs) which for me is a better legacy. but, But yeah, there have since been many female chairs, but I definitely enjoy the fact that I'm on the historical timeline of the first hospital in the country.
0: That is so awesome. And I also love the fact that now you put it in perspective and you're like, okay, no, my son is more of a legacy than that. That's really incredible. Well, Jody, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, if you have found this conversation helpful, please, please go to Amazon and order The Schmuck in My Office subtitled How to Deal Effectively with Difficult People at Work. And if you're not an Amazon person, I'm sure you can find it on Barnes & Noble or you could probably walk into your local bookstore and order it as well. So, Jody, again, thank you so much for coming on.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me back.
0: Listeners, if you have found this conversation with Dr. Jody Foster useful and helpful, a handful of things. Forward it to someone at your organization or on your board who you think would find it useful as well. Also, there are two episodes that you maybe should consider downloading and listening to if this conversation kind of met your need today. The first is the first episode that Dr. Jodie Foster and her co-author, Dr. Michelle Joy, were on, and that's episode 41, Dealing with the Schmuck in Your Nonprofit. Also, check out a more recent episode, episode 232 with Karen Festi, Surviving Conflict. Listeners, that is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. And this is probably where I have my own jerk moment because I never, ever really want to do this piece. But, well, the lawyers make me do it. You know I'm not an accountant nor an attorney. And, by the way, I'm also not a medical professional or a clinical social worker or anything like that. So this episode is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for tax, legal accounting, medical, psychiatric or mental health advice. If you find yourself in need of any of those things, please, please, please seek out a qualified, licensed person and get their individual opinion. Please do not rely on podcasts for this.